and welcome back to AA Opera Podcast, episode 97, 97, 97. You know how we like when we were at 50, we were excited? Yeah. Double Nowhere it. near as divert. My goodness. I feel like it's the bingo each week. We're like, 97. <laughs> Blue, 97. Oh my God. Actually, you know what? Now that you say that, I kind of wish we did a bingo night. I don't know, because I'm 97 years old. With a little with the roundy little, thing. The little ball with the, the spinny thing. Yeah. Everyone with their little cards and the like dotting, uh, the, the dabber. Dabber, yeah. Could be fun. Um, but Ashley, how are you doing? How's your week been? It's been a good week this week. Uh, very singer orientated, which is always nice. Uh, ended up having two singing lessons this week and an audition. So it was heavy going on the on the voice front, but it was nice to get back into the swing of that again, um, especially into the swing of doing an audition. It has been a while for me uh and i actually quite enjoyed the pressure of it a little bit and i liked just tuning in i think to to oneself trying to like listen to my body like listen to like what was going on and how i dealt with that situation um and overall it went really well and just really glad to have had that opportunity um so and now it's done. You know, that that's one of the best things. You know, when you like get over that hurdle, just that feeling of like, yes, I did it. And you can go and reward yourself with a coffee and a cinnamon roll, which is what I did after the yes. audition. <laughs> so it was I nice. think um, when I came for the rounds of auditions for uh, academies and stuff, um, after getting a call back on the days that I would get a call back on the same day, um, I would then go to a nice yeah. tea store and buy myself some nice tea to take home. Yeah. It's such a singer thing to do. Yeah. You have to have like something because even if it's not going to be successful, because just because you had a call back mm. doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get it in the end. Exactly. Um, but you have to reward yourself on the things that like, yeah, you did get, to get a call back that's amazing yeah not everybody gets a call back and i remember the first time i came for auditions i didn't get any callbacks and i was like slightly and i didn't know that that meant that i wasn't going to the next round because they say that that doesn't mean anything but, but it does but it, it does. does it does it 100 percent does so if you which i guess the naivety of not knowing is good but yeah. Anyway, I don't know so, if they. I don't know if they still do this. But talking of like conservatoire audition callbacks, you know, <laughs> did they do this for you? I remember a few conservatoires do this. It's like you have your first audition and you go outside and you stand outside the room for like a few minutes, and then they just come out with like an envelope <laughs> that they give you. I had that at Guildhall. Yeah, I had it at Guildhall and RCM as well. At Manchester mm. in uh, Royal Northern, they come out with a printed list, so you have to see your name on the list. I remember that too. Yeah, yeah. Ooh. Disgusting. No. No, Disgusting. Anyway, 
because it was so it was so like ballet school type you know come see the lineup and i was like oh and then it gave your time slot also no i think i actually think the envelope is probably the the best out of the yeah going up to a board it's like a scene from them and fame or high school musical or something anyway avi how are you doing i am good i am i'm in israel um as we said last week it was very funny on friday we were in the car and my dad was like oh it's friday we should listen to the podcast and then he goes wow it's really weird to be in the car with you and listening to the podcast which episode did he put on did he put on uh, the most recent one yeah 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 he put on the most recent one but I just want to show you something that I don't think you've ever seen before. So my parents have a lemon tree, but I just want to show you. This is an average size from the lemon tree. I wish this was a video podcast at this point. <laughs> For reference, it is bigger than my hand and um, it's like half the size of my face, isn't it? Like, Avi, that is the biggest lemon I have ever seen. What? That's not even the, the biggest one. Oh my goodness. That could be in the no. Guinness World Book of Records, that could. Oh my God, there's so many of them. I don't know what's going on with my parents' tree, but they have like radioactive size lemons. <laughs> and this tree is like giving out all the lemons in the world. There are so many lemons in this house <laughs> that I like, they have jars of lemon juice in the fridge because the lemons will go bad so they have to juice them and they put and so like the amount of lemons in this house is insane that's incredible but yeah my parents have a lemon tree an orange tree and a grapefruit tree and all of them give like abnormally large <laughs> lemon fruits <laughs> <laughs> oh. but it's been really nice to be uh to be in israel uh i and yeah, and see my nieces and nephews and my siblings. It's been very exciting. Aww. And my favorite mug is here. Can we just talk about my favorite mug? It is a beautiful mug. Um, but why is it there? Why don't you bring it home? You know what? Maybe I'll do that this time. <laughs> I bought this mug, I think. So my mom has a ceramicist, uh, a potter friend. That sounds awful. I don't know what it's called. But someone who does ceramics. And she used to do like shows that she would like sell all of her stuff in our living room. And I got this from her when I was like 13 or 14. It's very nice. It's very it's nice. my favorite mug. Shall we kick off this week's episode? Yes, this has been quite a chatty opening, but this week we have an incredible guest with us. His name is Bruno Ravella. And Bruno is a fantastic director, and we can't wait for you to hear the episode. Take it away, Bruno. To AA Opera Podcast, would you like to start off by introducing yourself to our listeners? Um, well, hello, my name is Bruno Ravella and I'm an opera director. Fantastic. Um, can you tell us what your first experience of opera was? Ooh, that goes back uh, quite a while. I lived in South Africa when I was young. Uh, there was a, a connection with, with our school and the South African uh, African school. And there was a opera singer who was involved in... Uh, with them, and I went to see The Merry Widow, which is not quite 
what you'd say, what you call it, an opera. It's like an operetta. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. It, totally. But what it had was opera singers and it had everything. It had dancing, music, staging, um, and it was an amazing production. And that had a profound effect on me because it was the first time I saw something which combined music and theater. Um, straight after that, I saw the movie Traviata, the Zeffirelli movie. Uh, that then got me hooked onto Traviata, bought the record, and then that's when we all started from here. And my first opera live in an opera house was uh, Low and Green in Strasbourg. You really went in deep. Oh my god, yes, I know. <laughs> you were like, oh, I've been listening to Traviata, so yeah. let's go five hours in. <laughs> Mary, Wed- Mary Widow to that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I mean, it's got some, Low and Green has still got some lovely tunes, oh, and, and um, yeah, and that was it that was that fantastic so you were born in morocco to italian and polish parents and you were educated in france can we go way back to your younger self and was it always on the cards to have a career in opera after you experienced it that's that's a good question it's something that always stayed with me it was kind of a secret something that deep down i wanted to do but couldn't really share it with anyone because you can't really say uh, i want to be an opera director uh it's so a niche <laughs> when you're expected to do studies and, and just do a, get a proper job and um, but um, there was no opera at, at home um, uh, as I said I was born in Morocco there was a lot of music always with the, the two backgrounds the Italian and the Polish mm. there was always that the side kind of Italian Spanish music my granddad on the accordion my dad on the harmonica sounds like a you know, we've all seen those movies. And then on, <laughs> yeah. on the Polish side, and we had the polka and, and, and all of that. And those two, dancing was very present at home and music. So there was always that, that interest. Um, music was present, but not in a uh, kind of formal operatic way. And But then, then I was interested in theatre and music, dancing. Um, and then, as I said, opera combined, combined it all. Worlds, so, yeah, yeah, exactly. So when I discovered that, it was just, oh, that's it. And I was quite early on, actually, when I saw my first opera in, in Strasbourg. Um, I was studying for my A-levels there. And already my, I had a secret dream of being an uh, opera director one day. Okay. It, it took, a, took a while <laughs> to, to make that happen, because I did a job. I, I worked in normal job in marketing for a while, but eventually managed to make it happen. It's actually quite useful to have a marketing degree when it comes to opera and direction, doesn't it? I, I guess so. It, it's hard to tell how much of it was useful, but I think um, it, it was. Uh, I worked in advertising for about 15 years before I changed career. Um, and I learned, I worked a lot, I produced about 20, uh, 25 TV adverts, mm. um, not as a director, but as a, as a client, working with um, directors, working on the editing, working with actors, working on the, on the music. Um, and it started to work out storytelling, what works, what doesn't. It, it, the first time you watch an edit, for example, when the agency comes up and shows you a 30 second edit, you have to be in touch with your thoughts and your reactions because the second time you watch the edit, your brain uh, kind of fixes the problems. Mm. So it's it's that reading of, of something for the first time, being able to express immediately what you felt. Um, this is very useful in rehearsal, for example. When I watch uh, a run and be able to express immediately all my um, reactions to what I've seen, um, 
Yes, things, things like that. So they are useful things. Marketing as well is always thinking about, to some extent, what works, what has been done in the past. Um, for example, what I did at Rosen Cavalier uh, for Garsington, I was aware of the other Rosen Cavaliers in the UK, and you don't want to do something which visually uh, is similar. So that's, I guess, also is a bit of the marketing background. Mm, yeah. Viewing it slightly commercially, would you say? or A, a little bit, I, I guess. Definitely that creative thread through your marketing and your TV adverts yeah, into, yeah. into directing. Yeah. I can imagine that was quite a nice, um, nice move. So then, what triggered the switch? Basically, I ended up doing a business school and focus focus on on marketing, not necessarily by choice. It's um, when you live in France and you're good at school, you, automatically you have to go to certain schools. This is kind of what is expected of you. Language is bad, literature bad, uh, arts bad, science, marketing, business good. So I ended up there not really wanting to do it, but just kind of happening. And there was always a thing of get the degree and then you can change career. Um, got the degree, got the job, and then job led to another job, led to another job, job more and more responsibilities. Uh, and I liked it less and less. I got to the point where I thought if I don't change now, um, I'm going to be very bitter, <laughs> and and uh, I was I was actually quite unhappy. I remember going to work on Monday morning and thinking I actually hate the job. So it got to the point where I thought, okay, let's try. Uh, it, it, as I said, it was a, for about fifteen years that kept it as a secret to, to 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 everybody else, but but me that I wanted to to try that, and I thought let's let's give it a go and. The whole thing was quite, happened very much by chance. I met, I spoke to two friends, one of which said to me, oh, I'm doing an opera this summer in the farm. It was in North London, in the farm, community farm. If you want, you can assist the director. I said, oh, that'd be great, I'd love that, while still working. Yeah. Um, and the other one said to me, oh, I know a director called John Cox. Uh, he actually said, word for word, I don't know if he's any, if he's any good, but <laughs> I'll introduce <laughs> you to him. So I met John. John was very polite uh, and non-committal because uh, I arrived, you know, in my suit, and he's, he thought, "You've got a good job. You're making good money. What do you want to change?" And then the first one called me back and said, "Oh, the director's pulled out. Um, do you want to direct the show?" And I said, "Sure." And there was Hansel and Gretel um, uh, with the full orchestra, uh, professional singers, and amateur kind of community kids, and it was just a, a one performance in the farm on, on straw bales. But John couldn't come to see it, John Cox, because at the, that day he was directing uh, Tosca at the Royal Opera with a little-known singer called Pavarotti. Uh, <laughs> so so and he couldn't come. That was, that was his excuse. But John's partner came to see it, and then I got a phone call from John shortly after saying, you know, my partner liked it. Maybe there's something there. Do you want to come with me to LA to observe me from wow. a production with Kerry DeCanawa? And I thought, okay. So I, <laughs> yes, sold, <laughs> I, I sold my flat because I had no, no savings. Sold my flat, bought an ex council flat very quickly before the banks realized I had no income. <laughs> really quickly. And then had a bit of savings so I could live off the savings mm -hmm. and take unpaid work. And then followed John, and that was, that was it. That's an incredible mm. turnaround. That is like. Yeah. You go from the secret that you're keeping to working with the name, <laughs> yeah. like uh, 
What a story. Well, yeah, like the headliners and everything. You're just kind of thinking like, wow. Yeah, like, it's incredible. That is an incredible, incredible story. It was, it was quite funny being from, as I said, from a quite senior uh, position in marketing to suddenly me- making tea for Kirita Kanawa. And, <laughs> and she really liked how I made my tea. She kept saying, oh, that's that's excellent. So I thought, okay, wow, I've really, <laughs> really moved up. <laughs> yeah. um, and I make tea for Kiri. But that was, um, yeah, that was fun. That's yeah, fun. no, that's so inspiring as well. So you then decided to settle in the UK once you were done with school. Yeah. Um, and have worked at some of UK's favorite opera festivals, starting with Garslington. Um, where was it you had your professional debut then? Not under assistance, but like your own. I um, so I assisted. I assisted quite a bit. I assisted John on several projects. I also was lucky to be able to work in uh, Glyndebourne and the Royal Opera House, both of which have been very. So very supportive in giving me assisting work and then reviving work but also I was working on in small opera companies doing my own work for example Hampstead Garden Opera mm. which is um, we are in the West Hampstead here it's um, was a great company to learn and to try things out they were really good to me giving me quite a few projects um, so it wasn't quite a professional debut as such but it was a to some extent it, it was a very good way to learn and then um, the first one that I just say was Garsington, and I think I, I'd agree it was when I did Intermezzo for Garsington. I did Mansfield Park uh, at Hampstead Garden Opera, which went down really well. And there was a something which gave Garsington the uh, confidence that maybe I could take on um, a job, another job. And they gave me Intermezzo, which is a tricky really tricky um, Strauss opera um, and yeah and that worked worked out pretty well so that was that was that was yeah very pleased with that one that was fun um, and you've also got um, international directing credits as well such as France and America do you enjoy working abroad and if you had to pick a place in the world that you like working most uh, where would that be and why? Oh, that's a tricky question, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of <laughs> very one telling. There. Yeah, yeah, very, very tricky. Oh, I love everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, I love working abroad. I mean, uh, uh, I know you, you kind of mentioned briefly in the past. I, I was born in Morocco to kind of um, Italian, Polish. Um, then after Morocco, uh, and I was obviously at home, we spoke French because of Morocco, but also there was Italian spoken, there was Spanish spoken. Moved to South Africa. Um, then moved to France when I was 16, so I had 16 years of my life in Africa, north and south. Um, then France moved to three different cities before I moved here. So moving was always something, so it has always been something part of uh, who I am, part of my DNA. And I love exploring, I love going somewhere and um, some of my family call me tour guide Bruno because I, I, <laughs> I, I, I'm very curious and very keen to explore everything. So working abroad is great because not only do I, I get a chance to work with a new company or, or, or not, but I get to see a place and you get to live in a place for four, five, six weeks mm. and you become a local. So it's amazing, absolutely amazing and very, very fortunate. Um, now, the, back to your question. So yes, I do love working abroad. Mm. Um, w- the favorite one, that's a tricky one, because um, they all have quite something. The obvious one I would say to start with would be uh, Australia and US, mm. simply because um, 
to some extent they feel very uh, familiar the working ethics are similar to the ones here it's very anglo-saxon the, the way it's organized stage management etc etc um it's fun always fun places the weather is good most of the time uh, you get to you know wear shorts and flip-flops and, and yeah. so I, I like that um so yes i, I do like it there but i also like working in france uh, i've been given uh, very cool projects uh, in france and i've always had um yeah i'm very grateful to the work i, I get to do there do you find um having been exposed to various languages um growing up has helped you kind of with the confidence to sort of explore and work in different different places too yeah, i think so yes. yeah yeah, yeah. I can, I can, t um, the, the one language that's missing is German, mm. uh, so I always have to work a lot. Um, for example, Rosenkavali, I translated. Mm. Uh, I have to work very, very hard on the German. I could not direct in German, but all the others I can direct in Spanish, French, Italian, whatever. So I enjoy that because in, in a rehearsal room, I can, I can speak to a singer in the language that they are more comfortable with rather than necessarily English. That's very important, yeah. Yeah. Because sometimes you think they they will tell you, oh yeah, no English is fine, but really it isn't, mm -hmm. and and you can get you can have a, a deeper uh, conversation mm -hmm. in a language that they're more comfortable in. Sure. Yeah. Which brings us really nicely into our next question, which is, can we talk a little bit about your directing process? Um, do you have one, or do you draw on your any particular inspiration when coming to direct an opera? Okay, I, I think I don't, I don't have one uh, style fits all. Mm -hmm. um, I, I get inspired by the piece. I start with the, the, the words and the music. Um, I think it's probably to some extent the French education, which is kind of very Cartesian, where you learn, you, you're taught to um, um, look at text and analyze text and, and find things. So that's, that's kind of quite helpful from the French education. Uh, but then I started off with the music. I've got a very visual, um, visual inspiration. I, I I see images and I see uh, things from the music, and that kind of gives me a lot of ideas for obviously for the sets and, and things like that. Um, but in terms of the the the, the day to day directing, I start as I said with the piece. Then I always block on my score the whole piece from beginning to end, so I have an idea of where I'm heading for the important moments and then, then I do that again twice because then new ideas come up and then in rehearsal I'm quite free I come up with a plan I know what I want the scene to be um, but then you get ideas and inspiration from singers everybody's different everybody's got a different energy different uh, physicality and you have to draw from that well, that's a perfect connection again into <laughs> into our next question because it's um, what do you look for from singers when working with you in the rehearsal room mm hmm, hmm. Um, I'd say open mind uh, mostly, and and um, I'm I don't like conflict. I I, I like a happy, um, engaged team. Everybody's um, nothing is wrong. No, no ideas is bad. Um, so obviously to try things out. Um, as I said, I come up with a with a with a plan with the structure. Mm. Um, most of the time, I'm quite open. Sometimes I say no. That, sorry, this is absolutely what I want because I dreamt this scene and this is how I want mm -hmm. it to be. I, when I did Stefelio, um recently, there was one specific scene, the divorce scene, 
where I, I had it so clear in my head, I, I just wanted to deliver that image uh, and that vision. Sometimes it's more about exploring um, and trying things out, but yeah, just being playful and try things out. As a creative director, you probably have your, as you said, you have your vision for certain things, but how do you balance the conductor's needs versus plot and storytelling choices? Yeah, I like working with conductors. Um, mostly, it's gone. It's gone very well. Not <laughs> <laughs> uh, on all the words. <laughs> yes, it, it's a tricky one because I understand where they're coming from, Pro- provided they are present and engaged and and try things out. I'll try any, anything. And sometimes, if they tell me this can't work because uh, I they they have no contact with me or they need to be next to that person because otherwise the duo, the tree or whatever can't work. No problem, I change. I'm conscious of the art form. I, I know what the art form is and what it does. Um, I can't expect some, a singer to be singing upstage, uh, facing a wall and be heard over a loud orchestra. Uh, so I'm not going to ask that, <laughs> that to anyone. So I, I'm, I don't think I'm, I'm, a, I'm a director that the conductor will have a, a necessary problem with. Also, I'm very um, practical. If the, the conductor says this person needs to be next to that person, otherwise they, they you know, they, they can't be together in a in a duo or tree or whatever. I, I'll um, I'll change it. I also say always that there is a solution to everything. So I have the most amazing idea. It's I love it. It's fantastic. I think it's amazing. Then something has to change. We'll find another amazing idea. It, it's there's always you have to be pragmatic and practical. So um, yes, it's it's uh, sometimes it's interesting also. Uh, I will have an idea for a scene, and then I will hear the music call with the conductor who has a very different tempo to maybe the the recording I had. And that gives me a new idea. So I'm happy to work with, I will not say that it has to be that tempo or whatever. Um, You you start from the music and the emotions. It's really about being flexible in the room and being flexible with... Yeah, yeah. And also starting from what the music says and you can't expect, you can't go, I don't like to go against the music. Sometimes it works, sometimes it, it's quite interesting. But uh, most of the time I try to get inspiration from... With it, yeah. yeah. Move yeah. with it. Yeah. Great. I mean, let's talk a little bit about what is coming up. And it's recently been announced that you will be directing Donizetti's uh, Zoraida di Granata at Wexford Festival in 2023. Can you reveal... Um, what we can look forward to at all in this production. <laughs> and what is the production about? What is the opera about? Yeah. It's, uh, it's, um, it's actually a great piece uh, written. Uh, there are two versions of it. We're doing the first version. Um, it's a piece. Um, it's in, it's, um, we are in Spain, in Granada, obviously, uh, during the, um, the times where uh, the Arabs were, were in charge. But they're in Granada with the Spanish forces outside. And it's a um, really interesting piece. I, 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 when I talked to, about it to the designer, I said it's a mixture of Tosca and Fidelio. It has this oh, kind wow. of that. It's kind of a political element. This strong f- female um, uh, character, two lovers to some extent, similar to kind of Scarpia Cavaradossi, um, but also the idea of dungeons, prison, political intrigues. So it's kind of all all that in. You've got recitatives. A lovely music. Um, I can't tell you much more than that. It's still mm-hmm. working progress. It's it's a co-production with an Italian festival, and that has some. It's great. 
that's great. But also, we, we need to make sure that the, the set works for both houses. And this is what we're working on at the moment, making sure that whatever we come up with um, fits. For example, the, the festival in Italy uh, has a rake, and no rake in Wexford. We were thinking of using trucks. Yeah. You can't use trucks on a rake. Are we going to anti-rake? Things like that. So it's, it, there's some really boring um, technical stuff we need to go through. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I've, the only other Denizetti I've done was Elisea d'Amore, which is the first thing I directed after Hans and Gretel, again for Hampson Garden Opera, and it's quite different to Lilizia. Yeah, <laughs> it sounds um, it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it's, a, it's a good piece. It's, uh, it's a an, it's, um, good story. Mm. You get drawn into the story and the characters are interesting. So, yeah. Do you good. have any thoughts about why it's not one of the most popular? Um, it, it's a, it's an, another of those operas, you know, that he's done so many of. Um, that I just kind of disappeared, you know, people only stick to the ones uh, they know. Um, it's, it's early, it's early Donizetti. Yeah, I think it's good. I think it's good. I think some of the music is really, really very, very beautiful. Can I just jump in and ask yeah. as well, just go back to what you were saying about working with the designers and making mm -hmm. it work on um, both stages. How far in advance do those meetings start um, in preparation for 2023 summer? Mm -hmm. It varies greatly from house to house. Ah, okay. I like it when I know of a project three, four years in advance. Mm. That's luxury because then all you do is put a little seed at the back of your head and just let it grow. And it's wonderful because I get to live with the, with the piece for a while mm. and I get to have ideas that I can discard and then I get to form a, a nice idea. Uh, when sometimes it's a lot less than that, it can be a year or uh, before you need to to deliver a model. The thing is, for example, um, uh, Zoraida, which is going to be in October uh, twenty three, we have to deliver the final model by March. Mm. So, and sometimes it's an, a year before. I'm, I'm doing a show in Strasbourg in twenty four. Again, we we have to deliver the design now. So it's always. Don't think you have to. You have, you have less time than you think because of once you have to deliver designs that can build the set, cost it, build it, and costumes. When you are designing a production in your head, obviously there's a design team and all of that that comes in too. But how much of the time frame and the budget do you automatically get into before you start to like actually craft the idea? I start with, yeah, everything's possible to start with. You need to think big. You need to think about the big ideas, the big concepts, uh, what the piece is about. Mm. Uh, I always like to know what theatre I'm in. Um, it inspires a lot of the... Um, I like to know the theatre and I like to know what, the type of audience. Um, maybe that comes from the marketing. Mm. Um, but I, I like to know... A, a German audience would be very different to an Italian audience. Yeah. And... Um, I'm not arrogant enough that I say, you know, this is what I do and you're going to love it uh, no matter what. Um, I think I need to be aware of who I design for. Um, but yeah, I start, I start, start, I start big and then, then we look at the space. Anything more upcoming that you'd like to share with us? Yeah, um, before Zoraida, I'm doing uh, Ariadne of Naxos in uh, Garsington. Uh, this summer Fantastic. and that's starting soon I'm about to go to Dublin I'm going to Dublin on Sunday to revive uh, my Rosen Cavalier 
Irish National Opera. Uh, it's a co-production, the Rosen Cavalier is a co-production with Irish National Opera and Santa Fe Opera. Oh, so that's we'll good. Be, yeah, so it's, it's, uh, I can't wait to take it there too. I've never been to Dublin, so very excited. Um, Have yourself a Guinness. <laughs> yeah, oh my God, oh, so, yeah. Um, looking forward to the Guinness, yes, definitely. <laughs> but, but also the, the, the team, uh, the company is quite young mm-hmm. and has, is so ambitious and does so amazing work. Uh, such amazing work. So, so yeah, and I'm also very excited to redo um, Rosen Cavalier. It worked very well in Garsington, but I had a very strict. Uh, uh, it was in COVID times, so yeah. it had to be socially distanced. So I had to work very hard to make sure everybody wasn't too close to anybody else, and there was a two meter rule. If you went under uh, two meter, you had it was time. With, I literally had somebody with a chronometer. Um, wow. seeing how many seconds a person was close to somebody else and then you could only be so many seconds next to somebody else in, in the, during the duration of the show that's gone which yeah, means that <laughs> yeah which means that uh, the, the, the interesting thing is it, it created some really interesting blocking by having distance on stage uh, there was a tension um, you, you know, I, I was joking in rehearsal by, you know, opera duet, position number one, position number two, position, you, they go automatically in an embrace so they can sing out, but it's so unnatural. Um, here we didn't have that because obviously they had to be set apart, which is quite nice. So when the Marshalin says to Octavian, stop embracing me all the time, it was tricky because you could, <laughs> you could, you could He's be... literally on the other yeah, side. Yeah, exactly. It could be anywhere near her. But but um, but still, it, it it generated some quite cool stuff. So I'm going to keep a lot of that um, because it worked. And then I can uh, make some scenes more chaotic. For example, in Act Three, um, I had quite a small space, which I wanted a small space for it to be um, um, chaotic in Act in Act Three when everybody comes in. But we had one person coming deliver a line leave because we had to leave the space for the next person coming in to deliver their line and leave because somebody else was. so it was always a kind of in and out in and out because yeah. it had to be an open space because of, of social distancing so I don't have to do that so that's anyway that's Rosen Cavalier now so it's going to be a new version to some extent a little bit and then Ariadne which is very exciting in Gossington that's such a great opera oh yes yes yeah I love how you different you can make the first act and the second act it's like having two mini operas that you get to direct at the same time this that's very much yes that's very much a challenge and how how connected are they cynically in, in design or disconnected there's all the discussions we have with my designer um it's um it's a it's a challenge i, I love the piece um the end is tricky um, the final duet. Yeah. I call it the third act. It's just uh, <laughs> we ha- it. I spent a lot of time on on this with the designer because we need surprises. You need to. It all needs to become transcendental and and evolve cynically, not just uh, musically. That's so, so yeah, true because so often you see that last final act three. Um, <laughs> just drag on, and they're just staring into each into like yeah. the distance, and you're like. Okay. Yeah, yeah, this is the time when people fall asleep mostly. Yeah. And it was just a shame because it shouldn't be that. It's really climatic. There's something, as I said, transcendental. It's uh, Tristan is older to some extent. doesn't quite deliver that. But so how to make it cynically, how to deliver cynically what it delivers 
uh, emotionally in the text and, and where the two go and what it leads to. So, But I've got quite a few surprises there. Oh. So, yeah, oh. very excited. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like a very exciting year. Um, just to sort of round off the podcast, can you give any advice to aspiring directors looking to make a career within this industry? Mm, that's, that's a again, another very, very tricky one. I feel very, very fortunate that um, I was trusted by companies with projects and more companies trusted me, and etc. And I, I always wonder, why did that happen? I, I had to be at the right place at the right time uh, to be trusted. Um, there are many ways to start. I went f- down the assistant route. I, st- I changed career quite late. Um, after I was way past my 30s, so quite a late start. And um, I thought assisting would be a good way to learn and to, yeah, to learn an industry I knew nothing about. Uh, and I learned a lot from, you know, what to do and what not to do as well. <laughs> how to treat a chorus, how to um, do things. So I, I started with zero arrogance and just, mm. I want to learn. Um, and then obviously doing as much as I could on the side of my own project. That's how I did it. And it worked for me. Doesn't necessarily work for everyone. Um, I have young directors sometimes ask me that question, and it's I don't I, it's very very tricky one. It's yeah. really awful because I see some people who are very talented, and don't don't it's, get a break, and it's so unfair. And I I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. It's the reality. It yeah, is. It yeah. is, and it's very unfair. And yeah. Mm-hmm. It is one of those industries where as much as talent is really nurtured and like expected, a lot of luck is also involved in the situation. Luck, yes, and connections, meeting people. I, I'm really bad at talking to people. I, I, on the first night, I would just, you know, of somebody else's show, I would just escape and not talk to the people I should be talking to to get more work. So I'm really bad at that. But networking is something that works for some people. Mm-hmm. Um, it is about re- uh, contacts and s- talking to somebody who will then think, I'll give that person a chance. So where can people find you online if they want to follow along for all your projects? Well, I'm on the usual. The usual. <laughs> the, the usual the stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't put anything on Facebook. I'm really very, very bad with Facebook, but the usual Instagram, uh, Twitter, all of that. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you so much for being here. This was excellent. Thank you. We yeah. love to we love to get to know you. Great to meet you. This week's question is: If you could wake up tomorrow fluent in any other language, what would it be? Ooh. Okay. So, as we all know, I'm a big fan of Duolingo. I don't think we all know that, but we should all know I'm a big fan of Duolingo, and I actually use it with a lot of my Hebrew students. I have them practice on Duolingo um, because if you are learning a language perf- like in a different setting, it's a great way to practice. It's not, it shouldn't be your only access to the language, but it's a great way to practice and hear the language and repeat the language. Um, currently, I am doing German, but if I could wake up absolutely fluent in any other language, I'm going to have to say French. Oh, why? Because 
German and Italian are so much easier to read and understand as well as like the concepts of, of the language are not as complicated in my head for some reason. I think German because of like Yiddish and having like and Hebrew is quite like it works in my head. Like I can mm. I, for some reason it's easier in my head the German. Italian is like there's a lot to it, but there's a lot of like we've always you always deal with it in opera. Like mm. it's not it when, and once you have French and English, picking up Italian is not nearly as complicated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But picking up French and not sounding like you're stumbling or don't know what they're saying or whatever is so much more difficult. Yeah. And it's just a sexy language. Let's just admit that. It's a a sexy language. But it's also like a rude language. Like, I feel like you could be really rude. And like, oh, I don't know. I think there's something about French that I just really wish I was just absolutely fluent in French. That's my, and also all the operas that I sing in French, those are always the biggest stumbling blocks. It's always French. Yeah. And I guess it would help you live out some kind of like Emily in Paris dream have you seen that have I seen it yes (laughs) of course I've seen it do you know what I love about Emily in Paris though is that like it's so unrealistic every single part of it is unrealistic and I love the the the, like the conversations that happen online about how oh my god why do we need another unrealistic show and I'm like because we need it. It's not something to have a discussion about. It's just a stupid show. Yeah. Just let it be a stupid just let show. It be, let it be like, a show. Let it be trash TV for us to sit on the sofa with some popcorn and just chill out. <laughs> Thank you. Good night. Yeah. <laughs> like, none of it is realistic. What about you? What would your language of choice be? So, uh, my language of choice would actually be, like, Mandarin Chinese. And the reason why I say that is because if I was, if it was like a a superpower in that you woke up the next day and you were fluent, I feel like that would be one of the hardest languages to learn. Like you say, with like French, Italian, German, we can, we can kind of pick that up. But with Chinese, you've got all of the, the symbols and the way of like writing. It's all different, reading the opposite way. And so I've kind of taken the, the, the superpower approach to this. And I would love to wake yeah. up being fluent in Mandarin Chinese. You went, you went totally like superpower. What, how far can I go? And I went, how practical yes. can I go with this? <laughs> yes, different, different approaches to that question, but I think it works. <laughs> it for episode 97 of AA Opera Podcast. Thank you so much Bruno for coming and chatting with us. We really loved getting to know you. Um, And if you'd like to hear more from us and make sure you're following us on Instagram. We are AA Opera 
on there. If you love the podcast, a cheeky five-star rating and subscribing to the podcast would be really, really helpful. And if you loved it and you want to hear more of AA Opera, then you can buy us a coffee. Check out the link in our bio and support the podcast. Yeah, fill up my uh, favorite mug with something delicious. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) But we will be back next week with episode 98, so make sure you are subscribed, and we will see you very, very soon. See you then, guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.